Oh man, well we are, uh, we're starting in this book of First Peter. Uh, what we're going to do with First Peter, uh, it's, it's really exciting. I love the way Peter actually uh, writes this little epistle. Uh, we're going to uh, basically break this up into two different series. This first one is called Foundation. Um, what is it? <laughs> Secured on God's Promise. I always forget the, <laughs> I forget the subtitle. Me and, me and Forrest would go back and forth and get like different subtitles, so I always get them confused. Um, but this one, um, this first half of, of Peter, uh, really what he does is he really takes these foundational truths of who we are in Christ and what the promise of God is. And the second half of, of this book, this little letter of First Peter, uh, he goes into now how to build our life on these truths. Now, what's cool about this is that this is very much how even Paul writes a lot of the times. Paul always will spend the first half of his letters telling you all about Jesus, all about God, all about God's promise, all about the gospel, all about the truth, and then the second half of, Peter, of Paul's letters always are the practical things. And so when it comes to even the way we approach our life, we, we don't want to just build a life based on some principles, okay? because when the storm comes, those principles can just kind of get knocked over. But if we actually build our life on a strong foundation, on the, on the truth of God's promise, that's what actually causes us to have a life that's built to last. So the second um, uh, series, going through the second half of 1 Peter, uh, is going to be entitled Built to Last. But in this first section, over the next few weeks, we're going to be seeing how Peter looks to the church and he says, you really want a life that's built to last? You really want to be able to weather the storms and the tragedies of life? Do you want to be that man, that woman that is a, a man or woman of strength and character? Well, you have to have it be built on this promise. You have to have this foundation. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm excited to just kind of see how uh, Peter, uh, he kind of just he, he lays out this framework for us that if we really want this, this life that will last, a faith that will last and persevere, it has to be built on this foundation. This weekend, it's, it's interesting because um, and I've shared this story a little bit here and there, but it's been almost exactly uh, three years. Uh, it was three years ago, January 30th, uh, that um, I gave a sermon at the movement and... Um, and the sermon itself wasn't really anything. Seriously, don't watch it. Don't go online and find it. Uh, but because uh, it was it was hard for me to watch when I was going through it. But um, the sermon itself wasn't that amazing. But for me, I was the Lord started doing something in my life. And the lead up to that sermon, we were going through. Uh, it was kind of the tail end of Ephesians one and the beginning of Ephesians two, which I'm going to read from a little bit tonight because it's very pertinent to this opening part of First Peter. And, and I read this thing today where it says that a lot of times when God is, is doing something in your life, it's actually more that he's undoing something in your life. Okay, think about that for a second. When God is doing something in your life, most of the time it's he's actually undoing something. And about three years ago, God was really undoing a lot of stuff in my life. And he was doing this through his word where I was going into Ephesians. Chapter one, chapter two, and the things that he was revealing to me, that he was showing me, he was, he was undoing this, this part of my, my life and my, my beliefs and the way I saw God and the way I saw myself, and it started just breaking me. And, I, and I've mentioned this before, but I, I've known the Lord for uh, 16 years, almost 16 years now, and I, I, I promise you, because I feel like I got saved only three years ago. 
That's how much I was becoming just undone. God's glory, God's grace was being made known to me more than ever before and it completely radically changed the way that I saw him. I saw, as we sang earlier, I saw the beauty of his majesty in a whole new way. And, and tonight, as we look at this opening two verses of 1 Peter, we're only gonna get through two verses. He, he addresses that very thing because here's the thing that Peter is so adamant about if you want your life to really be built to last, if you want it to be strong to weather the storms of life, you have to, be, you have to build it on the promise of God, the true promise of God. And this is what God started showing me three years ago was a deeper part of his promise, a more colorful kind of 3D version of this truth. And I, I promise you guys, I knew the Lord, I loved Jesus, but something new just started becoming revealed in me. Okay, so before we jump into 1 Peter, I just want to pray that maybe even tonight God would begin some undoing in your own heart, some undoing in your mind. Because I think tonight there's going to be some stuff that's really going to challenge us and maybe even offend us a little bit, and next week we're going to continue that offense because he keeps going. But we're going to just kind of, we're going to start, kind of get the ball rolling tonight. So let's pray. Father, this evening, we ask that your Holy Spirit would confront us with truth. God, that he would bring the, the truth of your word to the forefront of our minds and that it would really uh, force us to look at you and to look at ourselves and come up with a, an objective view of, of who you are, your power, your might, your, your, your greatness, your glory. We become, uh, we'd, we'd get a better picture of our own sinfulness, our, our powerlessness, the deadness that we actually are in our sin, and how desperately in need we are of your grace. So God, I'm excited. Lord, I'm just so excited to jump into this book and just jump into your word. And I pray, God, that you would just start undoing some things in us this evening. We thank you, Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's open up to 1 Peter if you're not there already. Uh, first, a little background before we kind of jump into the theological stuff here. Uh, first Peter was written, uh, of course, by the Apostle Peter, uh, probably in the mid-60s, so a good uh, 25 years after Christ died, somewhere around there. And um, he, he was writing this, if you open up to actually the very first verse, you'll see in the first verse that he, um, he, he writes specifically to some people, and he names a couple uh, locations. You see the word uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, uh, Bithynia. Uh, and so this, this letter wasn't written like a lot of Paul's letters that were written to specific churches, but this was a letter that was, the specific intent was to be spread around a region. Okay, he wrote this letter and he sent it along probably with a messenger. Some people, uh, they kind of debate on who the messenger might have been, maybe Silas, maybe someone else. But this messenger would go around and he'd bring this letter to all these churches. And what he was wanting to encourage them in uh, was that there was a lot of persecution going on towards Christians. And so he wanted to encourage them, and, and just as we were already saying, is that if they wanted to last through this persecution, 
They had to really have their hope anchored on the truth, anchored on the promise of God, or else this persecution would just wipe them away. And so, so Peter's whole intent, he's writing specifically, uh, primarily to uh, what were Gentile believers, Okay, Gentiles are non-Jews, so these weren't people that grew up uh, Jewish and now became converted to, to see their Messiah. These were just scoundrels, okay? These are just the, the outsiders that came to know Jesus. So the, his primary um, audience were Gentiles that had gotten saved. Okay? And, um, and so this was really his, his, whole, his whole heart and his motive in writing this letter was to equip them in the truth so that they could have a, a life that was built to last even through all this persecution. Okay, so let's open up to verse one here. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Those are the only two verses we're going to go over tonight because these are very important verses for us to get a good context for the future. So let's go first and see this, this first interesting phrase that he starts with. Um, he calls uh, these people the elect exiles of the dispersion. Uh, what that means, this dispersion, that means that these saints are being dispersed and scattered among the nations. Okay, now this was a phrase that was used in the Old Testament to speak of the Jews when they were in exile, when they didn't have uh, their home in Israel and they had to live abroad. But Peter wasn't writing to Jews. He was writing to these Gentiles. So he was kind of making an, an allegorical connection, basically saying to them, saying to us, you are elect exiles being dispersed throughout the world. You are God's people that have been dispersed. This is not your, this is not your home. This world, the way it is, this is not your home. You're, you're a sojourner, a, a traveler in this life. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're exiles here. We're just visiting temporarily as we are dispersed throughout the world to share the gospel. And so he wants to encourage them first by saying, first of all, know that you are God's people. Even though you weren't Jews growing up, you're Gentiles, but you've, you, you're now God's people. Okay, now here's what's interesting. This first word he says, uh, to those who are elect exiles. It's a phrase that's only used this time in the word. This word elect means chosen. He says, you're, you're God's chosen travelers in this world. God has chosen you to be a citizen of heaven. This life here is just temporary. You're an exile that's being dispersed throughout the whole world and God has chosen you to be one of those exiles. He's chosen you. This word elect, it shows up 33 times in the New Testament when speaking about salvation. And I know that this word, uh, it, it kind of strikes a little bit of fear in some people. We hear the word election or God's choosing or predestination or foreknowledge and, and it just, it, it causes a lot of emotions. We start thinking things like, well, does that mean that we're just a bunch of robots or does that mean that, um, that, uh, that I have no free will, all these different things that we start thinking. But for Peter, he's saying, we need to understand this. 
If we want to live a life that's built to last, a, a life with deep faith, doesn't mean we're going to understand every single little nuance of it because only God does. But there's a reason why this, this, this thought, this truth is mentioned 33 times in the New Testament. God wants us to know something about our relationship with him. He wants us to believe something that is very important and deep. He wants to know that he has specifically chosen us for a very special purpose. He doesn't want us just to go around thinking that, uh, that, that this salvation is just random and God can do with or without us. He can just discard us if he, if he likes, but, but he has chosen us and this is an important understanding for us to live a life of deep worship, to really see the greatness and the majesty of God. And this is the thing that three years ago started coming to light for me. Because here's the thing, every single one of us, if you believe in the Bible, we all believe in election to some degree, right? Because it's there 33 times. You can't deny it. But what we, what we, where we're going to differ on is what does it actually mean? Does it just mean that God looked into the future and he knew that we chose him and so that's why he chose us because he knew the future? Or did he actually choose us in the past? Did he make the choice or did he just know that we were going to make the choice? That's usually kind of the differing views. Most people like the idea that God just had a crystal ball and looked into the future and knew that he chose us. And so therefore, because we chose him, then he chose us. And that's what most people kind of, they like to rest in because it kind of gives us a little sovereignty, doesn't it? it? Gives us a little control over our life. And we like that. But as we even look uh, tonight, we're gonna see that that might, that, that's, that's not really how it works. But when we actually grasp this and we look at it and we really, we, we are face to face with the word of God, it actually starts changing us. It starts causing us to worship more and worship deeper because we see the greatness and glory and love of Jesus Christ. So let's look into the next, uh, the next verse here. Verse two. It says, we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. We see here the, the three persons of the Trinity that are mentioned in one verse, and this happens a few times in the Bible. Uh, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. It's a word that we use to describe uh, these three persons. Uh, but in the word, we see that God is three. There's a handful of verses there that talk about it, even going back to Genesis 1. Uh, God says that, um, that uh, it says we have made man in our image. So there's this plurality that's used. But yet we know that God is still one. And the reason for this is that it, we, we've talked before about how God, went, when we sinned, God had this kind of a, a problem that, that he had to, he wanted to come up with a way to save us, but he couldn't pay back his own debt. When we sinned against him, he couldn't pay for our debt. A human being had to pay for our debt. And so God the Father looked to his son, Jesus, who is also fully God, and said, because you're perfect, like me, you can pay me back, so I want you to become a man so that man could actually pay me back. 
And so the, the important thing for us to see, though, is that, that this trinity, these three unique, uh, distinct persons that are still one God, but they have a different role in our salvation. The reason why there are three is that, that each one has a different part of how we're saved and what we're saved to. Okay, so for instance, God the Father did not die on the cross. Okay? God the Father didn't die on the cross. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. God the Son, Jesus Christ, he's the one that died on the cross for our sin. Now, some of the interesting things that we see with this Trinity is that we actually see that it's God the Father who's the one who actually chose us before the foundation of the world, is what the word says, that he chose us before the world was even here. And you know why he chose us? Because he wanted to give a gift to his son, whom he loved. And he chose us to be a special people. The word calls the church a bride. As a father, as a loving father, he wanted to, to give a perfect, spotless bride to his one and only son as a gift. And so he chose us to be this gift. The problem is that we're not a pure, spotless bride, are we? Kind of dirty, filthy people. This is why he sent his son to die for our sin, and then he gave us the Holy Spirit to live and dwell inside of us and start changing us into that pure, spotless bride. This Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us and seals us for the day of redemption, all of a sudden, our old self is dead, crucified with Christ, and now when God the Father looks at us, he only sees the Holy Spirit, the pure, spotless Holy Spirit. And now, even, even in your sin now, because you know, we, we live you sinful lives still, but even right now, when God looks at you, he sees the perfect, spotless Holy Spirit in you. And we now, as a church, we are now this, this pure, spotless bride, this gift to the Son. And so the Father, he's the one that chooses us for salvation. The Son is the one who actually accomplishes the work of salvation on the cross. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is sent into our life to actually, what the word calls us, sanctify us. That means to change us and make us holy and, and conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so all three have this, this different role that they play in our salvation, in our interaction. And you can pray to all three you can pray to the Holy Spirit, but here's the thing. This will start changing the way you pray if you're even cognizant of some of these different roles they play. Uh, I pray differently when I pray to the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit. I ask the Holy Spirit to do the work in me. I thank Jesus for dying for me, and I thank the Father for choosing me and for, for giving me all these great and wonderful gifts because the Word says that all of the, the great gifts, all, everything that's good and perfect comes from the Father. Everything we have comes from the Father through the work of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. But every gift you have from your marriage to everything else comes from the Father. He chose to give you these great gifts. And so I, I thank each person, and we call them, they're not people, you know, like human people, but it's just a word that we just kind of use but I thank each person of the Trinity differently and I worship differently when I think about their work in my life differently. And it's very, very uh, impactful to actually see these, these differences here. And now in 1 Peter, we actually see that there's uh, even, he's even showing some of these specific ways 
that these three persons of the Trinity work, that first of all, we're, we're elect, we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So we're chosen according to the Father's foreknowledge. Now again, we start asking ourselves, what does this foreknowledge mean? Does that mean he, he knew beforehand that we would choose, or is it something different? Is it something greater? Is, is God's grace in our life for salvation just simply that he offered Jesus to us? Is that as far as his grace goes? Or does his grace go even deeper than that? Does he actually choose us before the foundations of the earth? Despite our sin, despite our ugliness, despite our sinfulness, does he actually look past all of that and choose us? Or does he just simply offer us Jesus and we can kind of, you know, give or take? Now, what's interesting, when you look at this word uh, foreknowledge in your notes, the word to foreknow occurs five times in the New Testament, and foreknowledge occurs twice when referring to salvation. And it means that he didn't just know what will happen, but that he actually planned it beforehand. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, it says, this is um, a time when uh, one of the apostles was preaching and he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So he's saying, okay, you guys know who Jesus is. Well, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and you killed him. So he's saying that this, this idea of Jesus coming and dying, was that just God's foreknowledge? Like God knew that that was going to happen. He looked down the future, go, oh, look, my son died for them. Did he just know the future? Or was this foreknowledge something that he actually planned, that he actually had this knowledge that he is the one who planned beforehand? Well, according to Acts 2.22, it says that this was God's definite plan and foreknowledge that Jesus would die. Jesus' death wasn't just something that God knew would happen, but something that God planned would happen. His foreknowledge is something that he actually plans. He plans it ahead of time, beforehand. Ephesians 2.10 says, "Were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. See, God prepares. He has a great plan that he creates before the foundations of the earth. He didn't just look down the future in his crystal ball and he sees Life Mission Church. Hey, look, they started a church. That's cute. Awesome. Praise God. Praise me. <laughs> you know, he doesn't say that. He plans that this church would be born. He planned that this would happen. He planned that these good works that God prepared beforehand, that we would walk in them. The fact that you're here tonight, God planned you here. He chose for you to be here tonight. He wants you here tonight. So much so that he caused it to happen according to his foreknowledge, according to his definite plan. You're here because God chose for you to be here. To me, that excites me. That excites me. Because I can walk in confidence because I know there's no mistake in God's plan. Guys, this is what keeps me going. Starting a church is scary. And I'll tell you that Ephesians 2.10 was one of those verses that I hung on to for the last year because I know that it's God who prepares the good works for my life. 
not up to me and my power, my ability to be a good pastor. But I know that this is what God was doing. I know that this is what he, part of his definite plan for my life. And so now I just get to walk it out in confidence and faith because it's up to him and his power and his choosing. It's according to his foreknowledge, his definite plan. So I don't have to worry or second guess myself because let me tell you, starting a church, you do a lot of second guessing. Lord, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure you didn't pick the wrong guy? And if it was up to me and my power and my strength, then I'd quit. Because I don't have what it takes. But I know this is up to God's definite plan according to his foreknowledge that we're here tonight. That's why I keep going. Because I know, I know, I know, I know that this is what God is doing. This is what he designed, what he planned. And I love that. That gives me such a faith and confidence because there's no mistake in God's plan. Now here's the other thing about this word foreknowledge is that in the word, the, 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 uh, the word to know doesn't just mean something cerebral. Like, I know some facts. I know that one plus one equals two, but to know is something deeper, something more intimate. It actually speaks more of love and intimacy. Okay, so you know like in Luke chapter two, it says that when Joseph and Mary got together, that, that Joseph didn't know his wife until after Jesus was born. Well, we know that that doesn't actually mean that he never met her, right? Like, oh, you just had a baby. Who are you? Oh, Mary? Hi, nice to meet you. It doesn't mean that he didn't know Mary until Jesus was born. It means that he, he didn't like know her, know her. You know what I'm saying? I don't have to say the words, right? Okay, he didn't, he didn't know her, okay? So, so this, this knowing is something more intimate, more personal. And so when we talk about God's foreknowledge, what it's saying is that God loves you before the foundations of the earth. He chose to love you before you were even born. He chose you as his special possession, his special people to be the bride of Christ. He foreknew you, foreloved you. Before you even made all your mistakes that you've made, all the things that disqualify you from his love, before you even made those mistakes, he chose you to love you according to his love. This is the part that gets me so fired up because I don't deserve God's love, but yet he chose me in Christ before the foundations of the earth to be his son's possession. So what does this tell me? This tells me that it's not up to me. I, I can't lose this thing because God's already chosen me for it. I can fight and fight and fight against God's love and power, and guess who's going to win? God's always going to win. In his love before the foundation of the earth, he foreknew me as his son. Even though I rejected him time and time again for the first 18 years of my life. Even though I denied him time and time again in the last 16 years of my life. But because he foreknew me before the foundation of the earth, because he foreloved me, I can walk in confidence. I can walk in faith. I can, I can build my life on the foundation of this promise that I am his. That when he said it is finished on the cross, he meant it is finished. Look at Ephesians. This is the verse, so part of the verse that I, was, I, I read three years ago that I, I walked through with the church. Ephesians chapter one, verse four. Oh, I love this stuff. <laughs> 
actually go to three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. He hasn't blessed us according to, to your, your good stuff. He blesses you in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love, he predestined us. He chose us. He predetermined. He planned for us. Because of his love for us, he planned for us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of not our will, but of his will. He chose to adopt you. He chose to call you his son or his daughter to the praise of his glorious grace. See, what happens is when we see the bigness of God, when we actually see that God's actually the one that's sovereign and not us, that God can do whatever he wants, and what he does is he chooses us, he uses his sovereignty to choose filthy sinners like us, what it does is it causes us to praise his glorious grace. You start seeing that his grace is so much bigger than you actually thought it was. Because when we think that we're sovereign and it's all up to us, well, then God doesn't get near as much glory or credit. You start saying, yeah, I was a, I was a pretty smart guy and so I chose Jesus because it seemed like the logical choice. But here we're saying that no, no, we, we, were, we were not sons and daughters. We were enemies of God. And the reason why it's so important for us to know that we're chosen is this. If you're, if you're an orphan, can you, can you choose to be adopted by a loving family? No, you can't. It's not up to you. If you're, if you're dead, physically dead in the ground, can you just choose to be alive? No. It's up to the sovereignty of maybe doctors that are maybe trying to resuscitate you. But it's something external. You're at their mercy. As, a, as an orphan, you're at the mercy of, of potential parents. Uh, I, was, um, I, I was born April 4th, 1979, which means I was, um, in a creepy way, conceived somewhere around the 4th of July, 1978. Kind of weird that there was more than one kind of fireworks going on that night. Uh, super gross because my parents, but, um, but somewhere around there. Okay, now, does that mean, <laughs> my wife's shaking her head. I know, I just, hi mom and dad on the camera, how you doing? Um, <laughs> So, so April 4th, 1978, a whole year before I was even conceived, could I just choose to be conceived by my parents, to be born? I can't. If you're a prisoner in jail, can you just choose to be set free? You can't. You're, you're not sovereign. It's up to a, a judge to actually release you. And when we see in the word, we see all those phrases, those exact phrases. It says we're dead in our sins and trespasses. It says that we are not children of God, but we're children of wrath that are then adopted as children of God. And it says we're not born of human will, but we're actually born of the spirit according to the spirit's will. It says in John chapter one. Now the Bible uses these phrases not to be cute, but to be real. That we really were dead. 
And if we really were dead, that means we really couldn't choose just to be alive because dead people can't choose to be alive. If we really were children of wrath, we can't just choose to be adopted. Someone else is sovereign, not us. And so we look at it and now we start saying, God, sovereign God, adopted me. Why did he adopt me? Why did he choose me? I don't know why he chose me, but I'm so thankful that he did because I was just an orphan, a lost orphan. I was just, I was dead in my sins and trespasses. I was, I was a slave to sin. And he set me free through Jesus Christ. To continue in Ephesians, it says, to the praise and glory of his grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance. See, now that we're kids, now that we're his children, we get the inheritance of our father. We get an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And here's why. You know, I love the the small words. So that. Why does he choose us? So that we were the first to hope in Christ that we might be to the praise of his glory. He saves us to bring glory to his grace. The fact that God chooses a bunch of sinful people like us shows the, the, the might and beauty and glorious grace of who this all-powerful God would actually have mercy on people who don't deserve mercy. It shows the bigness of who God is. It shows the love of who God really is. It says, in him you also, when you first heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him. Now here's the thing. What I'm not saying, and what the Bible doesn't say, it doesn't say that we are now not responsible, okay? I, I believed in Jesus Christ on August 21st, 1997. Okay, I was not forced into believing Christ. I, I actually believed Okay, so we're not saying that God just like, uh, that there's, there's no responsibility on our end. The Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth. Okay, we're so responsible to actually make these decisions for Christ. Okay, so it says that when we, who we believed, we know that we were, uh, when we heard the gospel of our salvation, we believed in him, we were sealed, sealed, sealed. That means like done, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee. It's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it when we go to heaven to the praise of his glory. And in chapter two, it goes on to say how we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and, but we are by nature children of wrath. But God, because of his great mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, he's the one who made us alive together. We don't make ourselves alive. He made us alive together in Christ. By grace, we've been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, his grace would be made known.
in 1 John 4, 19. It says, we love him because he first loved us. See, God doesn't take his crystal ball and just look down in the future and say, oh, look, Joby decided to love me starting on August 21st, 1997, so therefore I'm gonna love him back. Now see, I love him because he chose to love me first. Also in 1 John 4.10, says, this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us first. And he sent his son Jesus to be the propitiation for our sin, to be the one that would satisfy the debt that we owe God. He loved us first. John 15, 16, Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide. He chose us so that we could bear fruit in our lives, so that we could walk out the good works that he prepared beforehand that we saw in Ephesians 2.10 because of his great love, because of his forelove for us, his foreknowledge, his, uh, this desire for him to make us his, to choose us to be his, to give us as a gift to his son, Jesus. It also says that we're saved according to the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification means to be holy that when God has chosen us, he's also promised to then sanctify us and change us, that he doesn't just save us to put us on a shelf or a trophy. You know, if we're the bride of Christ, we're not like the the trophy bride of Christ, okay? We're actually, uh, we're the bride of Christ and we're gonna be changed and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That as he's chosen us in Jesus, he then gives us the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, make us holy, and that's a promise that he's given us. And he does this for obedience, to Jesus Christ, that a life being sanctified will lead to a life of obedience. Uh, You can know that if you are saved, if you have the promised Holy Spirit in you, he will work on you, he will work in you, he will undo the sin in your life and he will bring you to obedience in Jesus Christ. It's gonna take your whole entire life, but you're gonna grow in it. It's a promised guarantee. It's a package deal, this justification, forgiveness of sins and sanctification growing, uh, it's it's promised that you will grow because the Holy Spirit has been given to you as a guarantee. I want to close on this uh, verse here. This will hopefully bring uh, some of this a little more to light. Go to um, Romans chapter 8. We'll start in verse 29. I want you guys to know too that we're going to be going into this a little bit more next week. So I know tonight even there's probably lots of questions, lots of maybe even opposition in your own spirit. You know, like you just, there's something about this that doesn't sit well with you. And that's okay. It's okay. Uh, next week we're going to go into a little bit more because, uh, and I had to really discipline myself to not go into the next part of First Peter because uh, it's, it's such, it's amazing, amazing stuff. And he's just going to get deeper into this truth that he's caused us to be saved and he's gonna protect us because it's his will. In Romans 8, 29, it says, for those whom he foreknew, that he foreloved, that he chose, 
He also predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. So, so those that God has saved, he's also chosen that we're going to be conformed gradually into the image of God. Okay, So again, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, through your life, he is going to work on you. It doesn't mean you're never going to have your down spot. It doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with sin. But it means that whoever he has foreknown and chosen to be his, he also foreknew and predestined you to be conformed into the image of his son. There's no atrophy in between the choosing and then the sanctification part. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so there's, there's no, like I said, no atrophy between these. If, if you're saved, if you've been justified, you're going to be glorified. If you've been called by God, you're going to be justified. You're going to be glorified. If, you're, if you've been called by God, you're going to be sanctified. You're going to grow in your faith. So what should we say about all this? And this is exactly what Peter's saying. What, we, what should we say about this truth, this promise? Well, if this promise is true, if, God are really, if it's really his power that chooses us, then here's what we can say. Well, if God is for us, if it's all about him and his decision, then who can be against us? Who can stop us? If God's plan is perfect and if his, if his choosing is sure and confident, that even if we're powerless, it's about his power, then who can be against us? He who didn't even spare his own son, God the Father didn't even spare his own son from us. So if he even gave us his own son, how would he not also give us graciously everything else that we need? Why do we doubt that God's going to provide for us when he already gave us Jesus? He gave us his most, the, the thing that he actually loves the most, and we think that he's not going to provide for the rest of our life. We think that he's not going to change us and grow us and sanctify us, but he already gave us Jesus. Why would he stop there? So who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is that that can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can, can you separate yourself from the love of Christ? Are you stronger than God? Because apparently all these other things can't do it. Tribulation, distress can't separate us from the love of God because, it's because we were predestined and chosen and foreknown in Christ before the foundations of the earth. And verse 37 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, not through ourselves, not through our own strength, not through our ability to be good Christians, not through our ability to read the word a bunch and go to church a bunch, and none of those things. That's not how we're more than conquerors, but instead, circle the phrase, through him. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm sure... I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things in the future, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from God. 
because we were foreknown before the foundations of the world to be his. He purchased us. He paid for us. We're his, and he's not letting go of you. If you're his, he's not letting go of you. And as we continue next week, Peter's going to keep building on this. Because Peter believes, he's convinced because of his own life that, that if we know this and believe this strength, that we're truly anchored in the perfection of Jesus Christ, if we're anchored because of his love towards us, then we will live a life that is built to last. We'll weather the storm. We'll become the moms and dads, the husbands, the wives that we want to become. But if, we, but if we're unsure of God's love for us, if we're unsure of our own salvation, we're gonna falter. We're gonna fall. We're gonna be timid. We're gonna lack a, a, a godly confidence. You can't grow in a loving relationship if you're not sure how the other person feels about you. If you're questioning how much God loves you, you're gonna keep failing. You're gonna keep having this roller coaster life. But if you're sure and confident of his love for you, and if you know that his love is rooted before the foundations of the earth, that you've been signed, sealed, and delivered, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit to be his, if you know that and you believe that and you remind yourself of that every day, oh man, you're gonna get stronger and stronger each and every day. That's the promise. That's the promise. So I want I want to pray because I know that uh, some of this stuff is uh, it's it's kind of it's just, it's 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 heavy and kind of deep and it might bring a little even confusion of okay well what does this mean then because the implications of this go far and deep and wide in our life but by God's grace for the next few weeks we'll we'll start seeing this unfold more and more and I want you guys to know that I chose First Peter because uh, Peter wrote this to churches that he wanted to be strong. He wrote it to churches because he wanted the church of Jesus Christ to be a strong, strong army. He wanted them to be able to endure. He wanted them to be able to be that pure, spotless bride. He wrote this specifically for churches because he wanted them to be able to stand firm. And so I chose this because I want us as a church to stand firm. And it's gonna start with being confronted with some of these truths. And we're gonna wrestle with them. I'd love to be on a fly on a wall in your community groups this week but this is gonna strengthen us, amen? Well, Lord, we, uh, God, we confess, Lord, that we, we don't know all the ins and outs of your plan, your, your, your works, your truth, your grace, your mercy. We're finite people. But God, we believe that uh, we believe that your word is true and that your word wants to show us the beauty of, of, of you, Father, and your son, Jesus. And so God, I pray that your spirit would, would just work in us, uh, that, he, that he would testify of the beauty of your grace that he would undo 
some things maybe that we've held on to, maybe some beliefs that we just kind of believed just because it was convenient or because it made more sense. Maybe it's because how we experience things. But God, show us that maybe the way we experience things isn't necessarily truth. It might be true, but it's not your truth. I pray that this exposing to your word would deepen and broaden our picture of you. This week we would spend time in your word. We'd spend time in 1 Peter chapter 1. We'd spend time in Romans chapter 8. Spend time as we prepare for our community groups, Lord, as, as we, we look into your word, that your word would change us, that your truth would set us free. Thank you, Lord.